Welcome to the first episode of Tell Me Your Truest Story. I'm Karen Miriam Goldberg. This monthly podcast focuses on exploring, unearthing, and at times revising the stories we tell ourselves and are told to find greater freedom, justice, wisdom, and homecoming. Explore with us ways to better align our narratives with our callings and the callings of our time with the living earth. Today's episode, The World is Made of Story, gets its title from something one of our guests, David Abrams, said in his interview. I knew from my first inklings of this podcast that the first episode needs to focus on where we are, our literal ground, the living earth, which endlessly guides and inspires me to find the real story of being alive. I'm also recording from my front porch, so if you hear any birds in the background, well, it just made sense to be outside. Thomas Berry, in his landmark book, The Dream of the Earth, writes, For people, generally their story of the universe and the human role in the universe is their primary source of intelligibility and value. The deepest crises experienced by any society are those moments of change when the story becomes inadequate for meeting the survival demands of the present situation. Thank heavens for visionaries such as Stephanie Mills and David Abram, whose interviews you'll soon hear, for how they embody new stories that meet our deepest crises and questions. We start with Stephanie Mills, who caught the public eye in 1969 with her commencement address, The Future is a Cruel Hoax, at Mills College. She went on to become a cornerstone writer and editor of the great journal Coevolution Quarterly, and also has published widely in ecological journals. After falling in love with a place by way of the first North American Bioregional Congress in 1984, where I first met her, she moved from the San Francisco Bay Area to Northwest Lower Michigan. There she lives in her small home surrounded by books and trees. Her own books include Whatever Happened to Ecology, In Praise of Nature, in service to the wild, restoring and re-inhabiting damaged lands, and my favorite, Epicurean simplicity. Stephanie has been called by her alma mater, a visionary ecological activist and pioneering bioregionalist whose unswerving advocacy for the preservation of our shared planet and powerful message of personal responsibility teach us that a single voice can transform the world. It is amazing we can do this, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We are recording. So, welcome Stephanie Mills. I'm so excited that you are the first person I'm interviewing for this podcast because years ago when I first met you, after reading your writing for some years before that, I was just so inspired about how you were living your own story. You were living the story of your own vision. And so 
I wanted to start this podcast with speaking from and about our common ground, this living earth, because to me, that's the source of the truest story of who we are, how we live, and that age-old question of how to live. You're well known as an ecological and bioregional writer, thinker, and being. And so let's start with the start. Where did that story start from you, even before the public focus on what you had to say opened up from your commencement speech at Mills College um, years ago? Well, thank you, uh, Karen. And it's an honor uh, to be invited into this conversation with you and um, speaking with a with a true poet is really really a gift it's a you know it's kind of a lyrical question you ask uh, about relationship to the living earth i suspect that mine was engendered by my mother's tenderness towards uh, small animals and uh, her garden and that she got some of that from her father so it was kind of hereditary <laughs> Having grown up in Phoenix, Arizona, my contact with nature was in a suburban, a fenced suburban backyard, so far as I knew, in the backyard that had a little lily pond that my mom and dad had created. It was a closed, a closed garden, but still wanted to be outside like a little kid. The sense of reverence for the living earth, I think, came more, you know, philosophically and intellectually as I um, went to college in the San Francisco Bay Area and imbibed the stirrings of, and listened to the rhetoric of the ecology movement. And today, it's if I walk out my door and see a patch of lichen on the pine trunk that I hadn't noticed before, um, it enlivens me. Or enlikens you. Yes, yes. Did you always know that you were a writer? I think I did. I certainly always was a, a talker, and I'm told that I had a remarkable vocabulary for a kid. So, you know, why? I don't know. Both parents are, were avid uh, readers and very articulate and um, had wonderful idiomatic speech as well as perfectly good English. So there was a lot of, a lot of language uh, surrounding me and just started writing um, for publication. When I was in high school, I had an opinion column in the Mustang Roundup. Also had a column in the college paper and edited the literary magazine. And then by a wild stroke of luck, I was famous when I graduated from college. And so that led me into editorships. I just always have been writing. Yeah, I love that you had an opinion column as a teenager. And <laughs> anybody who's spent any time knows that you also have a remarkable vocabulary as an adult. As somebody who grew up in Brooklyn and then in the suburbs of central New Jersey, I so relate to that pull to 
what's wild and what's alive outside. I used to hide in this overgrown hill behind our house, write and draw for hours. Ooh. So for you, what was it that you first felt compelled to write about? I know that your famous speech, The Future is a Cruel Hoax, focused on how because of the ecological situation of this planet, which the human ecological situation, which has gotten nothing but far worse since you gave that speech, you had decided then you weren't going to have children and kaboom, you were propelled into the public spotlight. But even before that, what was the what behind your writing? Oh, what a fabulous question. Combination of ire and love. I I think, you know, what prompted that that writing, that speech was just uh, just being staggered by the magnitude of the ecological crisis and exponential growth of of human population and the implications thereof and and I did not do not see you know, commensurate awareness <laughs> on the part of of uh, the general public. So it was, you know, it was definitely wanting to sound the alarm at, at that point. But, you know, running with the ecological crowd of wonderful, aware uh, people, like, you know, learning more and more about nature in detail and, and ways human beings engaged with it filled in the picture you know and and made you know my sense of wonder grew and grew in my sense of all that there is in that needs our care and protection really just expanded and that's really interesting the way you say it because you know the Kansas area watershed and other bioregional groups focus a lot on who are we in relation to what David Abram calls the more than human species around us? And from that, you know, a sense of wonder will take you a long way to learning and about what's around you and learning about yourself. And it seems like a lot of your writing that I know of speaks to both wonder and justice, particularly when it comes to this earth and you saw early on in your life the need to sound the alarm. And so to riff off the title of, wasn't this your first book, Whatever Happened to Ecology? A wonderful book because it's kind of a cultural memoir and a personal memoir at mm -hmm. one. So I've just got to ask, like, whatever happened to ecology? How do you see that now? You know, when I took that title, it actually was for a novel that I never finished, a sort of a roman à clay, and then I recycled it later. Uh, but I was thinking, and this was like in 1970, watching the sort of reform and regulatory environmental uh, establishment develop. You know, I, I mean, there was all that extremely valuable legislation passed, bureaucracies and nonprofit organizations co-evolving with bureaucracies. And, you know, not to dismiss 
any of that or its value, but sitting out in the Bay Area where um, the diggers like Freeman House and, and Peter Berg and the poets like like Michael McClure and Lawrence Ferlinghetti were calling attention to the radical insight that ecology, you know, presents that we're, you know, that we're in it. We're not apart from it. It's not about us. And really, we shouldn't be trying to tweak the living world to our our purposes. Rather, we should be about finding our way back into the to the web. One of the reasons that bioregionalism was so attractive, pertinent, was it's revolutionary. <laughs> it's everything has to change. Absolutely. And you know, you and I swim in the waters of bioregionalism, but then if you don't swim in those waters, when people ask what it is, what I always think is, how much time do you have? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I wonder if you could just kind of give your take on how do you explain what bioregionalism is? And from there, if you might riff on what it what it has done and meant to your life. I Yeah, got a minute. It's a visionary politics of place. How's that for a... I think that's great. A, a run <laughs> at it. But it, you know, that doesn't doesn't entirely cover it. But but part of what's so ex- potentially exciting about it is is it's sort of back to the future, you know, uh back to place located human cultures that practice some kind of subsistence largely, you know, not not without trade, not without interaction, but imagine being so intimately acquainted with your um, life place that you and your fellow homo sapiens could dwell there for a long, long time without damaging it. I'm learning a lot the longer I live, and I, I hope that some of my misconceptions are being dislodged. And one of them is about loyalty place and fidelity to place in the sense that I thought that tribal folks were intensely local and totally co-evolved with their places. And that's largely true, but people moved around continually. They weren't necessarily cosmopolitan, but they were mobile. A sense of place, which to me is really fundamental to bioregionalism, is a lot less rigid. Yes, and you're kind of speaking about almost um, a migratory way of bioregionalism, which follows my life from the East Coast and kaboom, I find my real home is Kansas. Yeah. Starts in Arizona and goes to the Bay Area. And there you are in Northwest Lower Michigan. What's true or truest for you about your home or your life now? And let me ask this an inside out way. Did you have a story that was evolving when you were a young woman in the Bay Area about what your life would be? Oh, wow. Yeah, I pondering this, this question that you pose has made me try to remember more about my younger self. When I was in college in the Bay Area in the 70s, 
I think I just imagined that I was somehow going to be a bohemian forever. The means of an existence would drop into my hands. And, you know, I'd find ways to express myself. I mean, it, it was pretty vague. I guess I must have felt like talent was going to have to prevail somehow, find expression. And, and then I probably had a kind of an artiste identity. I got drawn into the ecology movement and did lots and lots of public speaking. And I, I had a little bit of a hero story going. I didn't, I don't know how far I, I projected that into the future. But, you know, when I, I met Phil at the first North American Bioregional Congress, and I followed him home to Northwest Lower Michigan, parked myself here, the story was going to be a kind of a heartland, a hippie, uh, Scott and Helen Nearing deal. Well, that's not a bad story to emulate. Well, no, if you, you know, if you've got the chops and the, and the energy and the resolve, as it, it didn't turn out like that. <laughs> I just, at, I got started writing books. Then my story was author. You know, I'm an author. I've got my studio. I've got my desk. I've got my contracts. I've got my research. And it was wonderful. You know, that was about a good 15-year run. And and I don't know if I imagined that that would go on indefinitely, but it, but it didn't. <laughs> And so now, you know, but as I say, I've been pondering your wonderful questions, and I don't see the narrative going forward. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to go forward, but, but what I'm doing right now is just trying to develop my understanding and, and, and be loving. That's really a beautiful circle to and, you know, in many ways, you are one of the vital voices of ecological prophecy in speaking and in writing. Um, and so here you are now living in this, you know, beautiful, small, little um, cocoon of a house <laughs> woods on your own. So does it even make sense to ask yourself, well, what story am I living now? Or is it more just kind of evolving awareness or passing memory of this and then that and paying attention? More the latter. I, I've got to say, I'm so totally confounded by the present moment um, that I, I don't, I personally don't see a path forward. Mm -hmm. um, that does not mean that there aren't paths forward that are really, really, you know, contain some, some promise. And I've got, you know, there are many people around me, um, them, you know, sort of making, making the roads by walking, but, um, I'm really in, in, uh, one day at a time mode now and and one book at a time <laughs> <laughs> one paragraph at a time and yeah. i know you, you have never shied um away from apocalyptic realities which kind of brings me full circle to 
something I read about in the little chapbook of sorts you wrote about Bob Swan, where he says positively dazzling realism. And that made me turn to my favorite of your books, Epicurean Simplicity. And this quote that I found, um, I believe right at the end, if we cultivate our delight in and gratitude for the last things, a drink of water, a night's rest, the sight of a blue jay, we cultivate the life strong within us and enliven possibility itself. Although I fancy being a nun in a contemplative order with a membership of one, I sense that learning the limits of having, remembering the nature of true pleasure, and becoming the change I wish in the world involve finding a way to talk with that kid catching minnows, and more important, to listen to him. I wonder how this lands in you today, because you probably wrote this, what, 20-something years ago? Yeah. I'll stand by that story. Life just won't be gainsaid, you know. It, I'm sort of fossicking around on my desk to find this wonderful little poem that uh, one of my younger friends tucked in my uh, mailbox, along with willow shoots and pussy willows and daffodils. Her name's Joelle Primo Hannard. She writes, Spring has now unwrapped the flowers. Day is fast reviving. Life in all her growing powers towards the light is striving. Would you say your story is about a deep love affair with the earth? Gosh, earth is, you know, that's such a, a vast entity. Should we say like the, a specific place? I think I'd focus it a little a little more closely on on evolution, you know, in the sense of, that this planet has has evolution, and evolution you know has engendered bat wings and Laurie Anderson, you know <laughs> <laughs> that's a great combination. I mean, just the phenomenal things that human beings are capable of, especially, you know, intimate relations, neighborly relations, mutual aid, you know, that really is, that's evolutionary, <laughs> you know, just, just the wonders, the wonders of feathers and snow fleas, burying beetles and you know, maples turning a zillion colors of red, all of that, you know. So it's it's a dynamic. It's so dynamic. So where do you find your solace in all this? Well, the, you know, the lofty answer would be in in walks. Actually, I just mainly walk, uh, walk in my neighborhood along the road. And so I, I'm just observing changes in those considerably altered environments and reading and literature, interlibrary loan. Oh, man. <laughs> so incredible the things it's possible to have a peek at. But I take uh, some solace within, within myself. I mean, I have to. You know, it's part of this thing of growing Growing older is just finding a way to make peace with myself. I particularly love how you started out with a, ly a lyrical question. 
<laughs> relationship to the earth. And thank you for living and amplifying that story through your writing and speaking and relationships and everything else over these years. Oh my gosh, Karen. Thank you. Thank you. You've got to take yourself home to the sound of your own heartbeat singing hey singing hey You're listening to Tell Me Your Truest Story. That was Stephanie Mills. And before we go to David Abram, I wanted to share another quote from Thomas Berry's The Dream of the Earth that illuminates David's work and presence. Tell me a story, a story that will be my story, as well as the story of everyone and everything about me. The story that brings us together in a valley community a story that brings together the human community with every living being in the valley, a story that brings us together under the arc of the great blue sky in the day and the starry heavens at night, a story that will drench us with rain and dry us with the wind, a story told by humans to one another that will also be a story that the wood thrush sings in the thicket the story that the river recites in its downward journey, the story the Storm King Mountain images forth in the fullness of its grandeur. Imagination belongs to the senses, David Abram tells us. A cultural ecologist, geophilosopher, performance artist, and sleight-of-hand magician, he's the author of Becoming Animal, an Earthly Cosmology, and the spell of the sensuous, perception and language in a more-than-human world. He's widely recognized as a visionary presence, teacher, and writer. His work, according to the Alliance for Wild Ethics, which he founded and co-directs, engages the ecological depths of the imagination, exploring the ways in which sensory perception, poetics, and wonder inform the relation between the human body and the breathing earth. Although he lives with his family in the foothills of the southern Rockies, he grew up in the burbs on Long Island, and he continues to travel the world to speak and teach. I first met him in 1988 at a bioregional congress held in his and one of my favorite places, Squamish, British Columbia. I'm so happy to be with you, David. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I, you're so welcome. Oh, and I was just thinking about, I first met you at the Continental Bioregional Congress, standing in a circle with 200 people in the woods. And you talked about story and understanding and listening to this story we are inhabiting this imagination of the earth we are inhabiting 
and it drew me in. And ever since then, your words and work in the world has continually changed me for the better and helped me be more where I am. But before <laughs> I ask you any questions, how do you describe your work? Well, um, I am someone who is head over heels in love with the more than human earth, um, earth besotted. Uh, I'm a cultural ecologist and uh, a philosopher, what some folks call a geophilosopher, that is somebody working out the ways of, of thinking and reflecting under the influence of a more than human earth. Um, and I think um, what I'm, I'm generally known for my work in the ecology of perception or the ecology of sensory experience, the way the activity of our eyes and our ears and our skin functions to bind our individual nervous systems into the encompassing ecosystem as though perception were almost like a glue that, yeah, that binds our individual nervous systems into the wider ecology, wherever we find ourselves. Um, but I'm also uh, widely known for my work on the ecology of language, um, how what we say so profoundly influences what we see or hear or even taste of the earth around us. Cause I'm convinced that there are ways of speaking that many of us have inherited from this goofy civilization into which we were born, ways of speaking that, that work to stifle and inhibit that instinctive sensory attunement to the wider sensuous terrain. But I'm also convinced that there exist other ways of speaking, um, other ways of speaking that can actually encourage and enhance that spontaneous reciprocity between our animal senses and the animate earth. And so I'm always looking for ways of speaking otherwise, in ways that unshackle our senses, uh, uh, liberate them from the static stuck holding patterns they fall into. Yeah, so I think that's that's generally mm -hmm. the terrain within which I dance. Mm -hmm. And that makes me think about a quote that I just pulled up from The Spell of the Sensuous, uh, where you're talking about writing and human language and how our bodies have formed themselves in delicate reciprocity with the manifold textures, sounds, and shapes of the animate earth. But you also say, a story that makes sense is one that stirs the senses from their slumber, one that opens the eyes and ears to their real surroundings, tuning the tongue to the actual taste in the air and sending chills of recognition along the surface of the skin. To make mm. sense is to release the body from the constraints imposed by outworn ways of speaking and hence to renew and rejuvenate one's felt sense of the world. It is to make the senses wake up to where they are. Mm. Yeah, to make sense 
is just, just as the phrase says, it's to make our senses wake up to where they are. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that happen for you? Do you feel like even as a little child, you were just tuned in and that's where you were? Is it a strand that was really evident through your whole life that just kept, well, the fans were, the flames were fanned and you could see it more clearly as time went on? Or were you kind of- I, I can't them? help but feel like we're all born with this exquisite, exquisitely sensitive capacity um, to feel not just uh, the presence of the other humans around us, but of the ground underfoot and the winds gusting past our ears and a kind of fascination we all had in our earliest years with anything, anything that moved, bumblebees, dragonflies, ants and anthills. Um, but in fact, I shouldn't even say anything that moved because everything was animate. Everything moves, even that mountain, uh, which once we're grown up, it seems to us to stay still and stick where it is. But as, as kids and as small children, as long as we would move, if we would crawl a little bit, we would see the whole landscape shifting around us as we moved. And so we watched the mountain itself walking past us as we uh, made our way in the other direction. Everything had its animation and its inward vitality, its pulse. Um, and I think for myself, I was just kind of lucky enough to not have that entirely beaten out of me um, by my schooling. Um, although school sure uh, did try hard mm -hmm. to, um, to deaden all of that wild and multiplicitous weirdness in the world. Um, but somehow it never got completely buried or paved over. So when in my uh, adolescence or mid-teens, I started to scratch at the surface of my skin all of this uh, richly animistic sensibility that is our birthright came flooding back. Um, so yeah, I guess that's how I, I'd answer that. Oh, I'll turn down my yeah. phone. Well, I definitely right. hear you. And you grew up, did you grow up on Long Island? Yeah. In, yeah, in suburbia, suburban Long Island. Yep. Yeah, I grew up in suburban New Jersey, and here we are. So do you remember, um, or let me ask it this way, what are some of your early memories of just feeling this adamant earth flowing or flying or shifting by? Mm. Oh, just so many. Um, I mean, suburbia itself was kind of a luscious place to live. We had a, a little creek running through our backyard. Um, and I, I love to just wander down there and gaze into the water and see 
uh, the small fish moving within this other medium that I could hardly understand. I knew I could drink it and it tasted really good. Uh, it was a weird thing also on Long Island in suburban New York, um, we could still drink the water uh, when I was a kid um, without worries, or at least I did, and I never got sick from it. Um, um, which of course, now I don't know that there's anywhere in the United States in the 48 contiguous states where you can uh, blithely just sip the water without fear of getting giardia or some other illness, um, uh, unless you're drinking straight from the melting uh, snows on the mountains high in the Rockies where I now live. But um, um, the wonderful uh, uh, trees in our backyard, we had a weeping willow tree that I just loved its expressiveness and standing under those whipping branches as winds were pouring past. I loved climbing up the beech tree in the backyard and dangling my feet down or sometimes hanging upside down and dangling my head and my arms down from that tree. These all were so alive for me. And yet each tree had its particular style of life, its own personality. Um, but I have to admit, as, as a kid, even the rocks had their personalities. There was lots of um, granite around there, other kinds of stones washed up by the ocean waves. Um, and every stone had uh, a strangely different patterning of minerals and textures on its surface. And I love to put stones in my mouth, tasting them. But I think I was, I was not just searching out the tastes with my tongue, but the textures of those stones. So I'd walk along the street or walking to school as I did um, each weekday. And I'd pick up stones and put them in my mouth. Um, and I'd arrive at school with one or another stone um, tucked into my cheeks. Um, too many memories, gazing the flight of birds or the wild raspberry uh, hedges that grew and grew in our backyard, um, um, sort of taking over the yard. Ah, such a, a kind of paradise for me to wander into these prickly, thorny bushes and pluck fresh raspberries. My grandpa coming up to visit saw this unruly weed in our backyard and took clippers to it and clipped the whole thing down. This was one of the tragedies of my childhood. Of course, he didn't recognize that these were raspberries and didn't know since they were fruiting at that time. But then there were no more raspberries to pluck um, and, and, and to squinch in my mouth. Well, you know, it's really, you bring back a lot of memories for me because I grew up half in Brooklyn and half in suburban New Jersey. And I had, mm. I had various trees I had very big crushes on. And there was a weeping willow in our backyard in New Jersey. And it was on this completely unruly little hill that my father never mowed. And 
he said he was just letting it go wild. And I, I hid under that willow in the grasses and overgrowth of that hill, writing my first poems. But I was also thinking as you talked about rocks and we're talking about trees, I remember at a bioregional Congress very early, somebody talking about how the trees are migrating through, even the rocks are migrating through. Nice. And this kind of brings me back to somebody who had an influence on our lives, which is Thomas Berry and his dream Mm. of the earth. And how does that speak through the stories you live or wander through at this moment? Well, you know, my fascination with sensory experience, it somewhat grows out of my earlier craft and profession as a sleight of hand magician, Mm -hmm. uh, applying my craft throughout New England and then throughout North America as uh, uh, a magician and then traveling through Europe as an itinerant sleight of hand magician and then taking the craft of magic on the road through Southeast Asia, through Indonesia, through Nepal, uh, looking to meet the traditional medicine people or magicians or shamans who practice their craft in the small village backwaters of Indonesia and of Nepal. Um, The magician, whether a contemporary sleight of hand conjurer or a traditional indigenous sorcerer, magicians are those folks who work with the malleable fluid textures of perception itself. Magicians are those who are adept at altering our senses, altering the texture of sensory experience, of perception. Um, and, And as a sleight of hand magician training myself in that craft, I became very aware of of how what we call imagination is, and we think of it as this sort of separate faculty in our heads for uh, um, the creation of fantasy and fantastic worlds. But it began to become clear to me that imagination belongs first to the senses, to our bodily senses, to the eyes, to the ears, to the skin, that our senses are not uh, these kind of um, mechanical um, organs for just passively sort of picking up uh, inert data from the surrounding world, uh, although that's how I was taught, that actually our bodily senses are these very gregarious participatory organs whereby our sensing body is always throwing itself beyond uh, what it sees directly in the world to make richer contact with things, with the other sides of things, the aspects of the world that we don't see directly. I mean, when you're walking in the woods and you're walking past some trees, um, there's a great deal of those trees that you don't see directly. 
um, as I'm walking past the trunk of an old maple. Um, it's a big trunk, but I don't see the other side of that trunk. And yet if I'm just walking through the woods, um, um, I still have a sense of the other side of that tree trunk. I mean, who knows? I, it could be, it could be, um, it could be flat and covered in plastic for all I know, because I don't see it directly. And yet I do have a sense of the other side of that maple trunk as being round and covered with a sort of mottled bark, much like the bark I see on the side facing me, because the imagination of my eyes fills in that gap uh, with, um, with a bark that I kind of intuit or imagine must, must be there. And I'm doing this all the time as I'm walking through the woods. But even if I walk around those trees, okay, so I see, yes, they have bark on their other sides, but there's still a lot of the tree trunks I don't encounter directly, I don't perceive, like the inside of the trunks. Who knows, they could be hollow and have a bunch of rope ladders inside with um, some, uh, you know, a whole bevy of elves climbing up and down on those rope ladders, yodeling to each other. It's possible because I don't perceive them directly. Nonetheless, as I'm walking through the woods, I have a rich, thick sense of the density of those trunks because the imagination of my own sensate body lends something of my own visceral density to those trunks, to what I see, and fills in that gap. That is, imagination is simply that gregarious leading edge of, of the senses by which our eyes, our skin, our ears are always throwing themselves beyond what's immediately given in the surrounding world to make richer contact with the things that we perceive. But if this is true, then, um, then the world we experience all the time is a great work of imagination. That perception always involves imagination. Um, it's, it always involves a kind of creative, participatory, uh, improvisational blending of our own, uh, our own body with the things that it encounters. Um, but it's not just we two-leggeds who are doing this. Um, the bees dreaming their way toward the blossoms, um, they are, you know, their own imagination is, uh, is, is, is extending their senses toward the blossoms that they're zooming in on. But those blossoms, even of the fruit trees, are themselves dreaming their way toward the pollinators, toward those bees, toward the fruit bats who will come in the evening. That is, each being is engaged in this creative sensing. Um, in which case, if this is, if I'm right here, then the imagination is not a separate faculty uh, lodged somewhere inside our, our brains. Um, 
inside us so that when we're imagining, we, we, we just go inward into this interior uh, zone that first and foremost, the world around us is made of imagination both our imagination and the imagination of those oak trees and of the roots of those trees sort of dreaming their way uh, toward the bits of moisture they're sussing out within the soil, like our toes, you know, I mean, they're reaching for that moisture. That takes imagination. Um, that takes that creativity in the senses. And so the world around us is made of, imagination, both our imagination and the imagination of all the other beings around us. So we don't, we don't live in a, a purely objective uh, world. We live immersed in imagination, oh, not see. our imagination, but the imagination of the earth itself. The earth is dreaming around us and through us steadily. And um, so that's, I think, where I go with that sense of the dream. The <laughs> well, dream thank you so much. And that connects very much to something that your second book focused very much on, which is Becoming Animal. Mm. And I wonder if you want to say more about that relation of becoming animal with the dream of the earth or um, mm. how we're all in this imagination together? And is that part of what makes us animal? I think so. I think, um, I think it's awfully important, particularly in this, uh, in this outrageous moment um, in the world, uh, this sort of teetering time in our whirling dervish Mm -hmm. of a world uh, where everything is threatening to spin ever more wildly out of control. Um, I think it's really important to identify ourselves, um, not just, of course, not just with our particular gender or ethnicity, uh, but even not just to identify ourselves just as humans, but to remember that we have a deep identity as animals that we share with all of the other walking and crawling and flapping and swimming folks around us, that we are animals among animals. And so to identify with our creaturely flesh, yes, it's a human flesh, um, but uh, the human is this very uh, audacious, fairly goofy, uh, sometimes gracious uh, creature, um, a wonderful creature, but a creature nonetheless, and hence, in many ways, just one of the gang with all these other animals. Um, to identify with our body um, and take deep pleasure in being a body and not think of the body just as our house or sort of the uh, temple of our soul or our spirit, but to allow that this body, these fingers, this tongue flapping between my teeth is, is the very texture and shape and 
style of this soul that I am, of, of the spirit, that the body is the body of a sentient mm-hmm. creature. Um, and to identify with one's animality, with one's animal body, is, I think, to discover that we live down here in the depths of a much vaster body, this immense spherical metabolism that is breathing all around us. We don't really live on the earth, though we say that here on earth, this is happening and that's happening, or we were placed on earth for this purpose or that. But good heavens, no, we, uh, we bubbled up out of the earth, um, um, co-evolved with all these other dastardly weird shapes and sentient forms and dreamings. We are pieces of earth that have gotten up and are moving around and have gulped some air, but we live not just on the surface of the earth because we're immersed in this thick fluid medium of air, which just because it's invisible, uh, we tend to take it so much for granted, but the air is what's lofting those clouds way up there. And it extends many, many miles beyond those clouds. We live down here immersed in the air, in this organ we call the atmosphere, an organ of this breathing planet we call earth or that I call earth, taking the letter I and placing it in the middle of the name of our planet to say that I am immersed in the air, A-I-R. And the air is entirely a part of the earth, E-A-I-R. So David, this, as you know, is called Tell Me Your Truest Story. And I wanted to start with you and with Stephanie because for me, that truest story is grounded in the earth. But for you, what does story have to do with all of this? Oh, story has everything to do with all of this because, you know, for our indigenous oral ancestors and for all the traditionally indigenous folks, still among us and around us Um, for oral cultures. Generally um, the world is made of story. Oral culture is storytelling culture. It's the culture of face to face and face to place storytelling. Um, When you grow up hearing stories and being taught through story, when all the deepest wisdom of your uh, community lives in a storied form, well, you have a sense of the surrounding earth itself as a vast story that is steadily unfolding all around you and in which you are one of the characters, a key character, but no more key and important than that blade of grass or that bullfrog in the stream, or that cloud slowly intensifying and thickening 
overhead. The, the experience of the world in a storytelling culture, one finds oneself sort of immersed within the surrounding sensuous landscape, much as characters are enfolded within the vast interiority of a story. That is, stories have an interiority to them that matches that of the surrounding sensuous earth. And so in traditionally oral cultures, there's a rich and deep sense of being inside, immersed in the depths of this breathing world. Because the world itself has the shape mm-hmm. of a story. Wow. Well, thank you so much for just circling it all up to help us remember, reconnect with this ground that we are, this ground that we live in. And thank you so much for your time and graciousness and for the vision that you embody in this world and through the way you embody it and articulate it you help us to come to the real ground also. (laughs) Oh, thanks so much, Karen, as do you. And uh, it's been a wonderful and nourishing friendship over these many years. So good luck with this rich new project you're undertaking. Thank you so much for listening to Tell Me Your Truest Story. Please subscribe to my podcast at karenmiriamgoldberg.podbean.com or visit my website for the link to find out more about workshops, writings, happenings, and my latest blog post at karenmiriamgoldberg.com. That's C-A-R-Y-N-M-I-R-R-I-A-M-G-O-L-D-B-E-R-G. You can also find Tell Me Your Truest Story on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Special thanks to Kelly Hunt for the use of her music from our co-written song, The Road is Just a River. And please catch up with more of Kelly's music at kellyhunt.com. That's Kelly with two E's, K-E-L-L-E-Y. Thank you to Diana Burrup for our logo. And thank you so much to Stephanie Mills and David Abram for joining me. May you find greater truth and joy, peace and wonder in your own truest stories.